0: Okay, we are back in Hebrews, chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and if you will turn there with me please and stand for the reverence of the reading of God's word. We return to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, focusing our attention this morning on verses 11 and 12. But, beloved, we are confident of a better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace. We pray that you would speak to us by your word, transform us by your truth, and let our lives bring glory and honor to the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about hope for over seven weeks now, and um, we launched into Romans from this passage in Hebrews just in time for Christmas and talked about the hope that God has delivered in Christ. And, And ultimately, hope is the power of God's promise being infused, being pressed into our current circumstance. When we lose hope, we allow the chaos of the world or our circumstances or our own sin to take our eyes off of the truth that is ours in Christ. And when we do that, it robs us of both our joy and our effectiveness for the king. It's a problem that the church needs to recognize and fight within ourselves. And ultimately, beloved, it is the deep play of the enemy. He's been very effective in its use, robbing us of our hope. And the net result of this attack is that ultimately it robs us of our vigor It's always about losing something that God has given to us. We cling to false things and we lose our grip on true ones. We become sluggish. We become ineffective. And then we're unable to fight the war that rages around us. The real flavor of the fight is the reality of our hope in Christ. So I'm going to think with you this morning about some of the things that we willingly lose that in the end can make us sluggish. Because that's a really powerful word to describe the church in America today. Sluggish. We're, we're sleepy. We're tired. We're fat. We're ineffective. We're, we're just sluggish. And, and it's my desire that at least here, God invigorate us. That, that God would turn us unto himself with passion and with purpose. And that he would grant to us a harvest according to his righteousness, and allow us the joy and the privilege of having some part in the expansion of the kingdom. So let's look at some things that we lose, that make us sluggish. And we'll, we'll pick the thought up next week and carry on to some ways to fight against it. So it's kind of a two-part sermon, <clears throat> at least as it fleshes out in my mind right now. The very first thing that we need to pay attention to is that we lose focus. We, we allow things in the world to drive our attention after it. We allow the allure of the world to drive us after it and, and to draw us into longing for things that we don't want. Um, sometimes we are setting our eyes and hearts upon that which will not last, and we become captive to the ideas and the foolishness that surrounds it. Sometimes we allow the bad things in the world to so distract us and to so overwhelm us that we lose our focus that way. We can't get our eyes off of the ruin of things that are going on. Um, Sometimes we lose our focus by finally becoming convinced that the things that the world says are true. And we see that happening a lot in, in people who would say that they're Christians. In people who would identify themselves as Christians, we see them beginning to swallow down the poison that the world is regularly offering. And they're beginning to believe it by all appearances. They're beginning to think that, well, you know, these things aren't that bad. If a person wants to believe that there's something other than how God made them, then we should just accept that. And who are we to say who they are? Well, truth is truth. Reality is reality. God has spoken. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And there's no blurring of that line. And there's no crossing over of that line. And there is no other category. That's all there is. There are men and there are women. And they are designed by God from the womb to be exactly what they are. And to allow that the idea is that there is a a confusion of this is to say that God has not done what he has said he has done. And more than that, as Christians, we need to recognize the truth that these things are a sin problem and they are a mental illness and for us to coddle that is not nice. It's not kind. It's not helpful. It doesn't do them any good for us to tell them that their delusions are true. As the church, we should be the bastion of truth. We should speak what the Bible has said, and we should hold out for what is actually true and what is actually right. We need to do it with kindness. We need to do it with grace. But the last thing in the world the church needs to do is to start to believe the lies just because it's politically correct. Just because somebody says you have to, or they'll take you off Facebook. It doesn't matter. If they take us off Facebook because I have said this in a sermon, then we'll find some other place to broadcast. I'm not concerned about it, and neither should you be. Ultimately, what the church is called to do is to speak the truth of God, period. We're not permitted to compromise on the issue of truth. But when we listen to the things that they say and listen to the things that they say and listen to the things that they say and continually over and over and over drink in that toxin, we begin to believe it. Joyce and I were listening to a a video a couple of weeks ago and the lady was a researcher of some kind. I don't remember what kind. But she said that for a child, they only need to hear a thing 14 times before they begin to believe it. Hear a thing repeated 14 times and they begin to believe that it's true. Do you know how many times it is for an adult? Seven. Seven times being told by something over and over and over this is true, and you begin to start believing it if you're not if you don't have your guard up. Beloved, that's what's gone on in the culture. That's what's gone on in the world around us. And unfortunately, it's also what's gone on in the church. We've listened to lies. We've believed things that are not true. And it has allowed the church to become corrupted. So when you become convinced that these things are true, you ultimately then begin taking part in them. You begin participating in them. You begin supporting them. You can drive into Manhattan and find churches that have signs supporting gay marriage and signs supporting the trans agenda and signs supporting this and signs supporting that and saying, God loves all these people exactly as they are and who are we to judge? Well... We judge according to the scripture, according to the truth of God's word, and God has not been silent on this issue. He has not been silent on the question of gender. He has not been silent on the question of race. Racism is evil and should be absolutely abolished. He has not been silent on the issue of sexuality. He has not been silent on any of the issues that are destroying our culture. (laughs) And the church of all places and of all people has the standard of truth by which we might stand and say this is what is real. But we've been too cowardly to do it. We've been too full of every wrong thing and too saturated by the things that the world is pumping out to stand for truth. It has to stop. If the church will not stand for truth, nobody will. When we begin participating in them, even by our acquiescence, according to Romans 1, we're guilty of them as if we do them. We do not have the privilege to be guiltless in our passive acquiescence. It progresses from there. When people lose their focus and they begin to fall down this path, not only do they participate in them, but then you find people in the church actively warring against those who stand for truth. You find Christians who will tell you that it is evil for a Christian to speak the truth about it. If this video is heard anywhere besides among our people, I fully expect to be contacted. Why? Because there are people who would tell me they are Christians who hate the truth. And they hate anybody who speaks the truth. And they will war against the truth being expressed with all the strength that is in them because they have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Now, we don't, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this idea, but I do want to point out to you that ultimately this creates a whole host of false teachers, and those false teachers have followers, and those followers tend to misdirect the church. Now, I just want to read about three passages with you, so turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Feel free to cross-reference this with the evening news. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, Unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. What? Did he just say that these are people in the church? Yes, he did. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. They will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. We'll look at 1 Timothy, chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Timothy, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So we see this false teaching get drug into the question of a works-based righteousness, by which if you eat these things and do these things and avoid these things, then you'll be righteous in the sight of God. It's false. It's a lie. It's, it's focusing on the wrong things. And it's focusing on the things that distract us from Christ. One last verse before we move on. First John chapter 2. <clears throat> First John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. Ultimately, what I want you to pay attention to is the fact that there is no shortage of false teachers out there. There is no shortage of very popular preachers who will feed you lies and feed you heresy and feeds you darkness. And if you are not discerning in what you're taking in, you will be led astray. If you're not discerning in what you're listening to, and what you're understanding, and what you're believing, it's going to impact your life. And in the end, all of this comes down from a shift in focus. It comes down from us losing the focus that we're supposed to have on Christ. comes down to us losing the focus that we're supposed to have on Him and His promises. What powers our hope? The faithfulness of God. Him actually saying what he says and meaning what he says and promising what he promises and delivering time and time and time again. And it doesn't matter whether he delivers on this particular promise at this particular moment. God is faithful. And he will always be faithful. And in the end, his word will stand true. And beloved, we're called to believe that with everything that we have in us. We're called to live that out. But if we allow our focus to be shifted off of Him, we lose that connection to our hope. We lose that connection to His promises. We lose that connection to the power of His hope which drives us and which anchors us in this day. We also then begin to lose a sense of purpose. We forget that the church marches against the gates of hell. I'm going to say that again. The church marches against the gates of hell. The last time I checked, gates don't move. But I want you to think about the posture that the church has taken for decades. Oh my goodness, hell is rising against us. We must hide. Draw into your caverns and and hide from the evil around you. Beloved, we're not called to fight a defensive war. We're called to advance the truth of the kingdom of God. We advance against the gates of hell and we are promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We are promised that when the church does its job and marches forth in truth, that God goes with us and victory is guaranteed. Amen. We, we lose sight of this. We lose sight of the fact that God calls us to actually fight and to, to expect victory. We lose sight of it because we forget that our job is not to hide, but to advance. Our king has already won the war. He's already defeated the enemy. All that we're doing right here and right now, this is mop-up exercises, that's it. The enemy has been vanquished. He has been cast down. He has been plundered. And our job is just to go out and root out the last little strands of insurrection. This is just mop-up. Imagine how awful it would be if we were actually fighting the war. We're not. We're doing the bidding of our king, who's already been victorious. He's already triumphed. The enemy's already been cast down. And because he's already triumphed, and he's already called us to do what he's called us to do, laid out our tasks, assigned us our missions, he's also given us the fullness of everything that we need to accomplish his purposes. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read the first few verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. So Paul begins by saying, I want you to understand that the ground of your standing is the gospel. The hope of your calling is the gospel. You have one message, and one message only, and that message is that Jesus Christ is the hope of everything. Your message is the gospel of Christ. You carry the good news of Jesus to a dying world. We cannot compromise on that. We cannot compromise on the truth of the gospel. Paul goes on, By which you also are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you... First of all, and the the literal here is as a matter of first importance. I delivered to you as the primary reason for everything that I did, this is the most important thing, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. And after that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. Now, I just want to inject something here. Do you know why he puts it that way? He appeared to 500 at once, of which the greater part remained. Do you know why he inserts that? Because the people to whom he's writing know who they are. Go talk to them. Go speak to the 500 living witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. If you doubt my word, go talk to them. They're still around, they're still alive. There has been such a a blindingly large assault on the veracity of Scripture because, you know, the Bible only has about 500 different evidences on every page showing us what it is. We, We find a fragment of a stone mentioning some king that we've never heard of before and suddenly we're building empires to his glory. But we take copy after copy after copy after copy after copy of the Scripture, archaeological evidence supporting the Scripture, eyewitness testimony in the time of the writing. If this was a lie, beloved, then the Corinthian church would have ceased to be because they would have gone to him and gone, so I heard you saw Jesus. What? Who told you that nonsense? There is so much evidence and so much truth and so much purpose in what we have been given And just because it happened 2,000 years ago doesn't make it untrue. And those who stand in the middle and cast aspersions by the wisdom of their great intellects can go fly somewhere. Because the scripture stands true. And the evidence of it, the insurmountable evidence of it, there is not another document in human history that is supported with as much evidence as the scripture. There is is absolutely no evidence supporting most of the other things that we believe. People just assert things and they tell you it's the truth. You have to believe it. We started off saying people will tell me they are what they're not and I'm supposed to believe it because it's the truth? I don't think so. I have the authority of the scripture and I have the reality that God has spoken what God has spoken. And I have the evidence, the veracity of eyewitnesses telling me that it's absolutely true. This empowers me. 500 eyewitnesses. Just chew on that for a minute. Do you know what the weight of the law is for eyewitnesses to determine the truth of something? Two. Two eyewitnesses giving testimony that does not disagree are counted as veracity. It's truth. It's it's indisputable. We have 500 of them. Not to mention Paul. (laughs) Paul. And, 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 and we still want to argue about this? We still want to allow them to argue about this? Stop backing up. Stand on the truth of God's word. This is the reality of what God has given us. And this is the truth. And no matter how you want to slice and dice it up, God's truth remains. So what is the truth of the gospel? Paul says, I deliver to you, first of all, of the utmost importance. The truth of the gospel is this. Jesus Christ was slain for sinners. He died for the sins of his people. And he was raised on the third day because God accepted that payment as accomplished. We have both halves of the divine transaction laid out clearly before us. And when you distill it down to its rawest form, this is the message of the gospel. This is the most basic, pristine stripped clean, stripped bare gospel presentation you're going to find in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3, 4, and 5. I delivered to you first of all. Jesus Christ was slain for sinners. He was buried and he was raised. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the truth that we need to be conveying to people. You say, well, how in the world does that apply in the context of all the things that are going on? Well, it starts by all of the things going on saying, these things are sin. And because of the sin that you are engaged in, there is a cost which has been assessed against you. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. but The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the hope that we have. But if you begin from the position that it's just your choice and you're free to do whatever you want to do and nobody has the right to tell you, boo, well, not only do you not have any interest in a savior, but you have no need for a savior because you are, of course, guiltless. Now, the sad fact of the matter is, is that the evidence again coming out is that down the road, all of the people who run down this mad hole become more and more confused in their mind. Mental illness follows after with strength and with, with horrible things. And, and there, is, there is such darkness in these lies. Sure, it looks happy and fluffy on the outside, For a little while. But in the end, it's death and destruction. And if we don't stand and deliver those who are perishing, beloved, understand that we will be held accountable for their guilt. Not for the fullness of their sin, but if we don't speak to them, if we don't tell them, their blood is on our head. We have to speak truth. We have to stop hiding. The church must rise. And the church must rise to speak the truth of God and to do it in a way that does not allow us to compromise His truth. Because we also forget the glory that dwells within us. We we lose sight of our purpose. We lose sight of our hope. We lose sight of the things that God has called us to do, and that includes the fact that we have been given glory inside of us. The Spirit of God dwells inside of His people. You are the temple of God. And that, beloved, is glorious. The glory that is in you is far surpassing the glory of Solomon's temple. The glory that is in you is far surpassing even the Shekinah glory of God that came upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. The glory that is in you surpasses the glory that filled Moses when he caught the glimpse of God for just a a microsecond. The glory that is in you is the continual, sufficient, all-supplying power of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you and transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's glory beyond your imagination. That is such power and such beauty and such purpose. But if we lose sight of our purpose, then we allow that these things, well, we hide our lights under a bushel, to borrow a phrase that Jesus used. And we will be accountable for that. We have forgotten the glory. And we have lost our purpose. We forget the beauty of the king. When we lose our purpose, we forget the beauty of the king. We forget what he's paid to ransom us. We forget the majesty that is Christ. We forget what he did and why he did it. We forget that he did that, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And we forget that the real battle that we fight is not with the world but with the enemy, with his deceptions and his lies. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3, Paul writes this, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is the reality of our fight. Beloved, understand this. We war against evil. With truth. We war against lies. With truth. We war against darkness. With truth. We war against perversity. With truth. We war against everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every idea that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The language that's used here gives us the the battleground so clearly. Our calling is in the realm of ideas and truth and and speaking words into darkness, speaking the truth of God's word into the minds and hearts. Because this is entirely about how people think and about how they're moving and about what their lives are aimed at. the, The spiritual dynamic exists here. You cannot convert somebody by the sword. Islam has proven that. You can make somebody outwardly obey, but you cannot convert somebody by the sword. Christianity has proven that. That's what the Crusades were. This is all madness. We shouldn't even have to discuss this. And yet, there are still efforts to try and force instead of speak. Beloved, we're called to speak the truth of God. And we're called to speak the truth of God unapologetically, unrelentingly, unflinchingly. Stand with courage and say what God has said. Stand with courage and speak what God has given. And understand that when you do that, you're casting down the strongholds of the enemy. You're tearing down the very places that he has erected for his defense. Those gates of hell. When we speak the truth of God, we are cooperating with what God has purposed. And his promise is that it is effective. For the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, pretensions, and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to accomplish that. But when we lose our purpose, we think that our battlefield is completely something else, and then we lose our way. We, we allow the weapons of the world to become our hope. We allow things like politics to be the thing that drives us. There, there, are, there are good ministries and good men who have abandoned the hope of the gospel for the sake of politics, for the sake of becoming politically active and making sure that the right party is, is in office and the right man sits in the White House. It doesn't matter who sits in the White House, Jesus Christ sits on his throne. And in the end, as Christians, we need to understand that, yes, we need to be good, responsible, civil, obedient, and good citizens, and participate in the system, and do what's required of us according to the system. But we also need to hold in our heads and in our hearts the very clear understanding that those things are not our hope. In the same way, the Scripture says that a wise man sees trouble ahead and prepares for it. The fool sees trouble ahead and does nothing. So you should be prepared for bad things happening. But you do not trust in your preparations. We do not put our hope in the strength of horses, beloved. In the strength of our own good right arm. We do not put hope in the things that we can do. Yes, I will defend my family to the death. But in the end, I'm not the one that I hope in. My God is. And if I don't have that clear in my head, then I'm going to find myself amiss. We can become addicted to the false hopes of the world. We can become addicted to anger, to manipulations, to impotent strivings that the world advocates. And while these things may allow some sort of plastic victory, they don't hold. They won't be sustainable. They will not actually produce the righteousness of God. All they do when we give those plastic victories, those woohoo we won, we give the enemy time to solidify his position. We give the enemy time to retreat into the stronghold that he's prepared because we were fainting at the wrong thing. We we were responding to the wrong approach. So often we strike against the enemy's feints instead of actually understanding what's really going on. Beloved, this is all a matter of truth. This is a matter of ideas. It's why the single most oppressive thing that's going on in our culture today is the silencing of your voice. You have a constitutional right for the freedom of speech to speak the the, the truth that you see. Not only do you have a right to do it, you have an obligation to do it. And that's from man's law. You can take that and you can square it and square it and square it to come to our responsibility in God's law. You must speak the truth that you know. And do not for one second lose sight of the fact that the forces that are arrayed against the truth of God are fighting us on the right battlefield. They're fighting our speaking. They're fighting our ability to speak the truth. And the church has relented. The church has bowed down and crushed under the weight of it and gone, oh, I don't want to be canceled. They cannot cancel you unless you allow them to. They might take you off a platform or three, but you still speak the truth. And beloved, speaking the truth is powerful. Remember that 12 uneducated men changed the world before Twitter. Shocking, isn't it? Even before CNN. <gasps> they, they spoke the truth, and the truth changed the world. We don't need their platforms to accomplish our calling. Use them while you can, absolutely, use them while you can. But don't allow fear of what's going to happen to silence the truth. We dare not. Our calling is to speak the truth of God and to rely upon Him. And when we allow our anger over the evil to cause us to hate the people instead of the lies of the enemy, we're also losing our way. And this gets really hard. It gets really hard when you see evil men in power doing evil things and celebrating the evil that they do not to hate them. I'm confessing my sin to you. But let me tell you the truth. It's sin. God calls us to hate the evil and to pray for those people because they are victims of the devil, just as you were, and just as you still would be if it were not for the grace of Christ. It's a hard balance to find. It's a hard balance to maintain. But it's an important one to be aware of. When we allow the massiveness of the war to destruct and obstruct the clarity of the battle. How many of you have heard the expression, you can win the battle but lose the war? We all know that, right? Did you know it's also possible to win the war and lose the battle? And that's not a good thing. Because remember we talked about last week how the secret things belong to God? He's the general. He's the one in command of the war. And he's the one who has given you your specific battle to fight. Your job is not to concern yourself with the war totality. That's not your calling. As far as I understand it, nobody in this room is God. Okay, I can go beyond that. Nobody in this room is God. If you think you are, see me afterwards. We'll have a good conversation. It'll be short. You're not. Go away. Ultimately, we get so wrapped up in all the things we can't do that we fail to do the things we can. And in that sense, we're still going to win the war. But you know, we're accountable for the battles that we lose because we don't fight. If you fight and you lose, you go down swinging, God is honored. There's no guilt in that. But you are accountable for every single battle that you refuse to fight. And we let fear do that to us. It makes us sluggish. You give in once, okay, I understand it. Gird yourself like a man and let's go. You give in twice, three times, pretty soon it's a habit. After that, it becomes a character. Beloved, the church is filled with cowards. And I'll tell you the truth. I have been one. Church is filled with cowardly men. God calls us to speak the truth. He calls us to stand and to fight the battle that he has put in front of us. And he will hold us accountable to do the things that he has told us to do. We are called to fight his fight. We are called to fight with the weapons that he provides us in the manner that he commands us at the moment that he commands us and he has placed us in. And we are called to fight for the glory of the king. The entirety of that entire structure is His. It's His purpose. It's His glory. It's His war. It's His battle. It's His plan. It's His power. It's His weapons. It's His victory. It's Him. It's always Christ. It's always God. It's always His purpose. And for us as believers, this has to be drilled into us. Because in the end, when we allow the evil of the day to stand unopposed because we're afraid... We've been complicit. When we allow the evil of the day to stand because we desire peace at all costs, because we're worried that somebody will get mad at us, because we just have to get along to get along, go along to get along, that's the expression, because we just have to do these things because in the end, I just don't want the consequences. I don't want the hardships. Can't we just all be nice? You can be nice while you speak the truth. They won't see it that way, but you can be. You can speak the truth with passionate love, and you should. But you should speak the truth. And there's no excuse for us not doing it. There's no excuse for us to pretend like we are not accountable for this, because in the end, God not only has given us the call to do this, and he's given us the the main tactic, which is the gospel, but he's also given us the specific weapons designed to fight the fight that he's put us in. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, though in it I may speak boldly as I ought. I personally find the last two verses very encouraging that Paul himself had to pray for strength, had to ask people to pray for him. But in the end... Do you notice the flavor of the weaponry that's been provided to us? It's all spiritual. It's all intellectual. It's all about the truth that we speak, the ideas that we propose, and the things that we choose to believe. Beloved, you you cannot believe their lies. And you cannot allow their lies to go unanswered. Because in the end, it means that you've lost your way. And after you lose your way, you kind of lose heart. You're out in the wilderness, you're in the desert alone, and you have no idea which way is out. You become filled with despair over the seemingly insurmountable forces that the enemy brings to bear. You become paralyzed with fear and or the inability to move against them because of your uncertainty. You become numb to the evil because of its prevalence and our own inability to effectively change it. We forget that the victory is sure and that the glory is promised. We forget that the joy which is set before us is closer than you imagine. I remind you that every single one of us is exactly one heartbeat away from the presence of Christ. The joy that is set before you is that close every moment that you're here. Amen. You will close your eyes here and you will open them gazing upon the face of the beloved. Amen. And everything that you thought you were going to do tomorrow is not going to matter at all. What we have is this moment and this day and this calling. And if you don't remember that, you're going to lose heart in the midst of the fight. You're going to forget why you're fighting. You're going to forget who you're fighting for. You're going to forget everything that matters. And suddenly you become victim to these lies that are being constantly thrown at you. When we find only ruin, we find only loss, we find only pain and defeat in the prospect of obedience, then we turn to a host of other things that in and of themselves may not be bad, but they're certainly not good. Beloved, we have to guard our souls. We have to guard our way according to the truth of God's Word. And we have to do it so that we're able to accomplish what God gives us to do. Ultimately, your best defense against this creeping miasma is to do the practical good for the body of Christ that God has put in front of you. Do you battle with selfishness? Then spend some time giving yourself to the body. Do you battle greed? Then understand that God has given you your physical resources so that you might have something to give to those in need. Do you battle with anything, beloved? There is an answer in how you approach the body of Christ and the work of the gospel, the calling that's upon us. The strongest weapon that the enemy has against your effective use of the gospel is you being inactive in the sake of the gospel. It's about you being inactive in the body of Christ. It's about you being inactive in the things that are in front of you. And the more you isolate yourself from the things that God has given you to do and to be a strength in your life, the worse off you're going to be. This is always true. There are no exceptions to this. God never called us to go live a monastic life. God never gave promise that that would be blessed and he never gave his, his approval of it. And he never said in any way whatsoever that a person who belongs to Christ should go and isolate themselves and gaze upon their navels until he comes back. It's what the church collectively has done in the sake of this culture. But if you've noticed, it's also what the church has done in the midst of being the church. We've withdrawn into our own little worlds. We've turned our homes into castles and into bastions of our own comfort and our own desires so that there's literally no need for us to ever leave them. You can do all your shopping online. You can have your groceries delivered. You can have your meals delivered. You can do everything that you possibly ever want to do and never have to darken the door of your own home. I will tell you the truth. It does not honor God. I'm not opposed to shopping online. That's not my point my point is that we must be engaged with the body of Christ and collectively as the body of Christ we must be engaged with the culture. Beloved, we're losing a war that we didn't even attend and it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And it is the church's responsibility in this land and in this time to stand for the truth. And in case you missed the memo, you are the church. I'm not the church. I'm a part of it as a believer in Christ, but I'm not the one who is called to win this community. Specifically, my calling, my task is to equip you to go out and win this community. There's been an entire corruption of the understanding of the church for the office of pastor for decades, centuries perhaps. We hire somebody and believe, oh, it's his job to go do it and he has to do everything. Well, a man shouldn't be lazy in the sacred office, but let me tell you the truth. He can't do everything. Your job is to win your community. Whoever that community is, people you work with, sometimes it's people you live with, your neighbors, your friends the town in which we live, the larger community. There is less than 30 miles away from here, a community that has given itself over to such idolatry, it turns my stomach. And, and, and we do what? Beloved, speak the truth into darkness. Don't be afraid. And where you battle against things, God has given you opportunities to engage which strengthens you. He's given you opportunities to engage in the body and to pour into the body that which will do good not only to the body but also to you. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Starting at verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary you could read that almost sluggish, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I want to focus your attention on verses nine and ten here: Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart, therefore. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you see the connection that Paul is making here between your harvest and your joy and your purpose and your ability to engage in the conflict successfully and your faithfulness to pour yourself into the body? Do good every place you can, but do it especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good every place you can, but do it especially for those who belong to Christ. Why? In practice, because God loves people who love his people, first of all. But in the practical realm of things, if you're functioning within a healthy body of Christ, then that is the one place where your mistakes will not be destroying you. Make sense? You're going to have the opportunity to to pour love into people and to probably get it wrong. Because if you're new at it, you will. (laughs) That's okay. Nobody in a healthy, functioning body of Christ is going to eat you for your mistakes. They're going to come alongside you. They're going to love on you. They're going to teach you. And they're going to help you. And in the end, you're going to bless them by your faithfulness, but they're also going to pour blessings back into you and strengthen you for the war out there where everybody you speak to is trying to take your head off. But if you're not engaging in the body in a way that is healthy and functioning and strong and passionate, then you are missing out on the greatest training ground you possibly have. And you're, you're entering into the real battlefield unprepared. Unequipped, abandoned, and alone. And beloved, you do that by your own choice. You do that by your own willfulness. You do that by your own refusal to engage in the body. Ultimately, when we do this, we lose our vigor, we lose our power, we lose our joy. When we disconnect from the glory of God as our motive, our purpose, and our strength, we're forced to rely on every other thing. And those other things are empty, and they will not provide what you need. They cannot, for they don't have it in them. Only a fool goes to an empty well looking for water. We fight against this by purposefully doing everything that we do to the glory of God. Jared's favorite verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He quotes that to us almost every Saturday morning. I love it. It's awesome. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You give yourself to the fullness of what God is calling you to do. And you do it with an eye on his glory, an eye on his perspective. Because in the end, when you set your focus or hopes on anything else, it will destroy you in the day of battle. Every other motive is false and every other hope actually is a snare of the enemy. Failing to have the right motive leaves us running on our own passions and leaves us running on our own power. And if you're not 100% on board with seeking the glory of God as your end-all, be-all of all things that are, then ultimately you're seeking glory for somebody else. Amen? You're either seeking glory for God or you're seeking glory for yourself. Those are really the only two options. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he actively opposes the proud. He actively opposes those that set themselves against him. <coughs> Beloved, in the end, we grow sluggish because we have been unplugged from the true source and power of our joy, of our hope, of our purpose. We grow unplugged because we've lost our connection to the things that that actually matter. And we lose those connections because we willingly give ourselves to things that don't. Beloved, we have to be attentive to this. We have to be mindful of it because this is the age in which we have been given. This is the place where God planted us. And all the time I I cry and moan about the darkness of the age, there's always a voice in the back of my head saying, these are the days that I've given you. These are the fights I have prepared for you. This day, this season, this time, this culture. It is anointed and appointed by God to produce His glory in me and cause me to produce His glory in the world. He has prepared these times for me and He has prepared me for these times. Beloved, the same thing is true of you. You're here. You're sucking wind. You're alive. And God has prepared you for a moment such as this. And it's time for the church to rise up. It's time for the church to stand and be the church. I see a few more than 12 uneducated men in here. I see a few uneducated women as well. (laughs) And a few highly educated women. And I know that right here in this place God has enough to change the world. One heart at a time. One life at a time. One conversation at a time. Holding fast the truth of God's word. Let us cease being sluggish. And let us rise up and do what God calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day and that you would teach us to honor your word with the fullness of what we are, God, that you would grant to us what you require of us. I pray, God, that you'd forgive us for our passivity and for the willingness with which we have embraced the things that the world tells us to believe. And I pray, God, that as we shake off that hold, that you would give us courage, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us grace, God. Let us speak the truth in love, but let us speak the truth. And I pray, God, over all that we do, that our lives would somehow bring glory to the risen Christ. God, please, do not let us be ashamed on the glory of his name, but let us adorn him with beauty and honor, and let our ways be pleasing in your sight. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Amen.